Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Well, I think uh, it helps to remind us that there were enslaved people during the war, and uh, they had important issues come up that affected them, uh, and particularly in the North. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Christian McBurney discussing Rhode Island's efforts to save an enslaved family from being transported to the South, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Christian McBurney. And he'll be discussing a harrowing story of an enslaved family that was sold to a slave owner in South Carolina uh, and saved from being transported south by the state government of Rhode Island. The story of abolition in America is not an easy one, uh, and it's not a fast one either. Uh, Abolition, emancipation is a long, slow process that didn't just end uh, or begin, rather, uh, at the end of the American Civil War, but it really began in a lot of ways at the dawn of the Revolution. Uh, that's how long it took. So it's an amazing story, and Christian McBurney's article underscores a relatively important moment in that fight. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Christian McBurney. Christian McBurney, welcome back. Thank you, glad to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, by trade, I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C. I grew up in uh, Rhode Island and became very interested in history, uh, including African-American history in Rhode Island. Uh, And Rhode Island had the highest percentage of uh, African-Americans in colonial times in New England. And uh, also, uh, what I really enjoy uh, uh, is uh, writing uh, history books, particularly about the Revolutionary War. I'm uh, coming out with my fifth book soon, published by West Home, called uh, Dark Voyage, an American Privateer's War on Britain's African Slave Trade. So uh, excited about that. And uh, also write about Rhode Island history. So uh, this article we're about to talk about uh, combines both. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, I, I found it a fascinating story, as many uh, stories are about the uh, uh, enslaved people and how they become free and uh, white people dealing with uh, slavery, particularly in the North, which is kind of my specialty, not not in the South. Most enslaved people in colonial times, of course, were in the South, about 550,000, most in Virginia and South Carolina. But there were enslaved people in the North as well in colonial times, uh, more than 50,000. And so uh, they were not slave societies in the North, but slaves were part of society. So um, uh, it's a, a fascinating story. How did Americans feel about slavery on the eve of revolution? 
Uh, yes, um, I did do a, a three-part article uh, for the Journal of American Revolution, uh, dealing with um, the American Revolution as a spur to abolition, uh, ending of slavery, and also ending of the terrible African slave trade. Um, now, it's important to put the world in context, the Western world. Um, at the time the revolution started, which I consider in the 1760s, um, there was almost no abolitionist activity anywhere in the world. Uh, there was a some in England, but uh, England was also the world's greatest slave trading country. They, uh, by far, uh, led in uh, bringing Af captive Africans from the west coast of Africa to the British Caribbean islands and had them working on uh, you know, terrible sugar plantations in the British Caribbean. So, uh, you know, before the revolution, there really wasn't any activity uh, either in America or Britain. But uh, when the revolution, revolutionary uh, sentiments begin to rise in the 1760s and early 1770s, so does the interest in um, uh, slavery. Uh, Americans were not totally stupid. Uh, a lot of their rhetoric was uh, that Britain is taking away our historic rights and they're trying to enslave us. It was very common to use that word, that they're trying to enslave us and we're going to end up to be like slaves. It was a possible thing. Uh, and <clears throat> many of them, uh, patriots, looked around and said, wait a minute, we have uh, real enslaved people in our midst. And uh, maybe that's not right. They are human beings. Um, you might think that they're inferior people at the time, which many people did in those days, but do they deserve to be enslaved? And uh, uh, there was the first stirrings of no, uh, slavery was wrong and the slave trade was wrong. Um, I'm thinking of uh, James Otis, very famous, for his pamphlets against uh, tax uh, and protesting taxation with, without representation. Well, I read the pamphlet and at the end, he starts talking about um, <clears throat> enslaved people. Uh, it didn't have to. It had nothing really to do with his main point. But he said uh, that slavery was wrong and uh, that the African, everyone, uh, human beings are all equal and they should be treated equal. And that uh, uh, the slave trade was horrendous and uh, you know made uh, everyone involved in it tyrants and was just a horrible practice. So uh, this... Uh, kind of language for the first time started becoming common in New England, common in the North. Uh, Benjamin Rush <clears throat> wrote a very impressive uh, modern style uh, article against slavery in, in Philadelphia. He was a, a doctor. And he even argued that blacks should be treated as equal to whites. Uh, and uh, a lot of Americans, even if they were against slavery, uh, didn't believe that. And he actually lost about half of his practice at the time. But um, then uh, even uh, uh, in the run-up to the uh, American Revolution, every colony tried to limit uh, importations of African captives. Uh, now, they did it for different reasons. In New England, I'd say most of it was humanitarian. In the South, in Virginia, for example, <clears throat> Virginia's economy was uh, on the downslide. And uh, if they brought in more Africans, it would reduce the value of their enslaved people. So uh, they uh, didn't want more imports either. There was also the stirrings of some humanitarian uh, concerns. Uh, George Mason, for example, was very much uh, uh, against the uh, slave trade, even though he was uh, did own slaves. Uh, even South Carolina, the worst 
of the slave colonies back then and and uh, after the revolution ended and the worst going forward um, uh, did not uh, want to import any more African captives but Britain didn't allow it Britain did not allow it because the slave trade was such an important part of its economy that they didn't want to have anything to do with hurting that part of the economy so there, there were lobbyists uh, from the British Caribbean in London um, fighting against those kind of uh, uh, um, rules and laws. How did the war change this? Well, uh, it's it's a big change. You know, uh, when we think of abolition movement, it doesn't all happen at once. That's not realistic. No, no major movement. Uh, you, you just have a, a huge. Typically, progress is made incrementally over years. It's like a wave. Sometimes you go forward uh, you know, 300 feet and then you go back 100 feet. But progress is being made. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the American Revolution, no question progress was made. Huge progress was made. Uh, some of the, the number of them uh, ended slavery. It was all connected to the revolution. Some of it took longer than other places. New York, New Jersey took longer than, say, uh, you know, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont. But um, and, and Pennsylvania, but in the North it, it ended, and this, and this was one of the first times in world history where slavery had existed, the slave trade had existed, but then was uh, ended by legislatures. Now the South it continued. Uh, a lot of patriots like uh, Jefferson and Washington hoped and thought that slavery would eventually die out. I think they sincerely thought that, but unfortunately uh, it did not. The founding of the the invention of the cotton gin really uh, made slavery grow in leaps and bounds and made that an unrealistic prospect if it had any reality to begin with. Talk about emancipation proposals in New England. What did they look like? Sure. It was, it's a no uh, standard uh, approach. Vermont, to, to their credit, was the first state to end slavery. It became a state in, I think, 1777, so after the Declaration of Independence, but in its constitution, it prohibited slavery. Uh, Massachusetts took a different approach. It um, uh, ended slavery by judicial decree in 1780. 17, uh, in the 1780s. In 1780, Massachusetts had uh, passed a new constitution, and it it parroted the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal. And by golly, the uh, judges took that on its face as saying uh, that included black men. So uh, slavery ended that way. Now, uh, and this partly ties into my article, most states did not want to address the issue of slavery during the Revolutionary War. And that's because um, uh, the states, uh, it was a divisive issue. It uh, wasn't necessarily that divisive in the North, but they would have, uh, you know, Northern states would have passed them, and then Southern states would have been very upset. And uh, when you're in an existential war, like uh, for survival, independence, like uh, was the case with the American Revolutionary War, then everything is devoted to winning the war, winning independence. Uh, you know, it's, America was the first time that uh, any colony had split successfully from a European power. So it was uh, really historic that that happened. So every effort was made not to be divisive, but to have a unified cause. 
<clears throat> so there was uh, intentional um, uh, approaches not to uh, get involved with the slave issue. And I even came across letters by John Adams saying uh, when they did the uh, 1780 Constitution, there were, not surprisingly, uh, proposals, hey, let's uh, ban slavery in our Constitution. But Adams and others said, no, that would alienate South Carolina and other uh, colonies in the South. Let's not uh, do that in this time and defer it. And um, uh, so it wasn't included. So that that was interesting. But once the war ended, uh, for example, uh, <clears throat> in 1784, Rhode Island and Connecticut passed gradual abolition laws. And those are interesting and complicated because, uh, and of course, the war ended in 1783. So within a year, those laws were passed. Um, but uh, so if you were in, under those laws, if you were an enslaved person already born, you continued to be a slave and only the children of those enslaved people would be born uh, as free. But even they would have to wait till, you know, typically ages 18, 21, 25 before they can be freed in part to uh, make sure that they could support themselves and in part to repay the owners for the expense of raising them. But in reality, slavery uh, ended much quicker in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> uh, slave owners negotiated with their slaves to manumit them or just manumit them outright. Uh, some slaves ran away and slave owners didn't bother to uh, track them down. And uh, a number of enslaved men uh, gained their freedom by fighting in the Continental Army or for the militia. Um, so that was uh, that uh, accounted for thousands. You know, the, the idea of somebody fighting for the country's liberty and then not giving them liberty just uh, wasn't going to happen. So uh, in Pennsylvania, they passed a law in 1780, actually, during the uh, uh, gradual abolition uh, movement uh, law in 1780, even before the war ended. So that was uh, impressive. But in the South, in the South, however, I have to add, you know, it, uh, it did not end. Uh, South Virginia had the most slaves. It wasn't a growing society, but still had a lot of enslaved people. They had tobacco farms and tobacco Farms were not doing well. They were moving a little bit towards wheat, which wasn't as, didn't require as much labor as tobacco farms. But South Carolina <clears throat> still had a big uh, uh, demand for enslaved people, and they were opening up farms in the in the West. Georgia started coming online, and they were uh, demanding more enslaved people to open up plantations there, and uh, just kept going on and on. Mostly. Uh, South Carolina and Georgia were the biggest problems when it came to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Who was Abigail and what was her story? Sure. And uh, <clears throat> I like to you know, give stories of real life kind of micro histories uh, that uh, you know, bring to light some of these bigger issues. Uh, Abigail was an enslaved woman in Rhode Island. Uh, and she had three children by 1779, each under the age of uh, nine. And uh, she's working for a pretty well-to-do uh, South County in Rhode Island uh, planter. But, uh, you know, the economy is not doing well in Rhode Island. The British are occupying Newport and, and uh, blockading Narragansett Bay. So, the uh, you know, having a lot of enslaved people just isn't the 
uh, working out. The economy is actually changing. Some of these farms are becoming smaller. Some slave people aren't, aren't really needed as much. So um, he was keeping his eyes open for an opportunity. And then uh, uh, this guy named John Rice comes along. Uh, he's from North Carolina. He wants to buy enslaved people and bring them back to North Carolina, where there's a big demand for them. Interestingly, during the war, the Continental Congress actually banned the African slave trade and banned importing, uh, well, actually for a few years, and then, but throughout the war, banned importations of African captives into North America. So there was still a demand in some places, and uh, he wanted, uh, he thought he could make some money by traveling to Rhode Island, a long way in those days, buying some slaves in other parts of New England and bringing them back and reselling them in uh, North Carolina. Uh, so uh, that's what he did. Uh, he actually came from a place called Hartford, North Carolina. But when he met people in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, he said he was from Hartford, and they all assumed it was Hartford, Connecticut. So uh, he knew that if he told people from New England that he was from North Carolina and he wanted to bring them back there, that they that would create problems. Uh, he did wind up uh, purchasing Abigail and her three children from this uh, the, the white slave owner in southern Rhode Island. Uh, and then um, uh, kept them there, went away to make more purchases in Massachusetts. And when he came back, he hired two uh, white uh, farmers to uh, take uh, wagons and help them uh, take uh, all of the enslaved people that he had purchased to New London, Connecticut. And uh, one of them was called Lotta Wick Stanton. He was actually a, a well-to-do, pretty well-to-do farmer, but he was a second son of a well-to-do father who was actually held slaves. But Lotta Wick did not hold slaves, and because his second sons often had difficulty uh, in making, uh, getting large farms for themselves, so he hired himself out as a wagon driver. And the other guy, uh, John Cross, was a peddler and uh, also hired himself out. Uh, now, both of them, as they were taking Abby uh, and her children to the West, towards uh, where they lived and also towards New London, they found out that uh, John Rice was from North Carolina and had intended to take, him out of, take them out of the state. And uh, they didn't like that. So uh, they spent the night at Lodowick Stanton's farm, and uh, Lodowick discussed the matter with his wife. Suddenly, he comes into uh, John Rice's room and says, I would like to purchase Abigail and her youngest daughter, Millie, which is also the daughter of my new, uh, the name of my new granddaughter. Um, but John Rice refuses. So Lodowick has to come up with another plan. And uh, he comes in later and says, oh, uh, Abigail and one of her children want to uh, spend the night at a different place. They don't want to sleep out in this far uh, barn and they can go to another place, have a little more comfort. And we'll just pick them up in the morning. So John says, OK, John Rice. But actually what happens is, is that Lodowick and a number of his neighbors spirit uh, Abigail and her children away in the night and hide her. So the next morning, John Rice is without his uh, uh, those uh, enslaved people he had purchased for three thousand dollars, including uh, 
not just continental paper money, but real hard Spanish coin coins. So that was uh, real money. Um, so uh, John gets very upset. He goes to the General Assembly and says, hey, you, you, you have to do something. But actually, the General Assembly of Rhode Island says, no, actually, we don't like the fact that you're taking Abigail out of the state. And then actually, you're from North Carolina and you're going to take her to North Carolina. Uh, we don't think that's right. And so they said uh, they put put uh, the transfer on hold. They had uh, Abigail and her children held by the county sheriff. Uh, until they decided what to do with her. And then uh, about a month later, they convened again and said, um, uh, we want to have Abigail and her children sold to a Rhode Island buyer, who the former owner approves of as as humane owners of enslaved people. And um, uh, of course, he wasn't that concerned the first time around, I guess. But, uh, uh, and then... um, uh, they would be the proceeds would be paid over to John Rice. Now this made John Rice very upset, <clears throat> but there was nothing he could do. And and uh, General Assembly actually passed a law, which uh, I kind of um, uncovered as the uh, the full text of the law. The, the like a one page one line summary of the law had been reported before in history books, but never the whole text. And the text was very interesting because it had a great uh, recital. The recital said, uh, we think slavery is wrong. We're inclined to end slavery once the war ends, but we don't, we're not in a position to do it right now while the war is going on. But we do think it's uh, very um, bad to uh, have enslaved people sold outside the state, taken away from their families. So they didn't like the fact that uh, uh, you know, Abigail would be taken away from you know, her mother, her father, husband uh, of the children, father of the children. Uh, so they uh, formally uh, uh, required that Abigail not be sold out of state and no other enslaved person be sold out of state either. And so they required that, um, uh, and actually turned out that, uh, and also the very interesting provisions of the law, which said that if anyone, one tried to sneakily uh, sell an enslaved person out of state, and someone informed him. The informer would get paid a, a bonus, and the enslaved people would become free. So I thought that was interesting. Um, in terms of Abigail, uh, she was actually purchased by Lotto Stanton and his wife, uh, and as well as her young youngest daughter Millie. Two other daughters were. And he lived in what's called Western Rhode Island, called Charlestown, Rhode Island. Two other daughters were uh, purchased by a, a, another local farmer who owned slaves, about five of them. Uh, but he was nearby, a lot of extent. So the families, you know, the mother couldn't see the two daughters on a daily basis, probably, but could see them now and again because they were nearby. So uh, that's the way it ended. Kind of a interesting story. I think it's... Uh, Two lessons. One is um, that, uh, you know, again, showing that uh, the states didn't want to end slavery during the war because they didn't want to alienate the South. Uh, They wanted to have the eye on the prize, winning independence first, and address slavery after the war. But 
when this came up, they had to address it right away. And second, that um, uh, that uh, they were they basically did say that uh, well uh, that Abigail herself she probably helped to spur the law change. So she talked to Lodewick and Stanton and pressed him to do something about it, and uh, so she helped to really uh, spur this law as well. Where does the story of abolition and emancipation go from there? Well, uh, they did pass the Emancipation Law in 1784, as well as in Connecticut. Uh, it was gradual abolition, so that I, I had talked about that and how that worked out. Um, now, Rhode Island was also the home of the slave trade. Uh, during colonial times, uh, Britain dominated the slave trade by far. <clears throat> but uh, in North America, uh, North American slave merchants in colonial times did about 4% two to four percent of the uh, carried about two to four percent of the African captives. So very small. But of those uh, North Americans, uh, Rhode Island dominated the slave merchants, particularly uh, Newport. So um, uh, that did uh, the slave trade uh, was ended by all of the uh, colonies and, and states, excuse me, after the Declaration of Independence, after winning the war. Every state said uh, we're not going to allow any more imports, even South Carolina, which was interesting, and Virginia. Uh, so that that was all good. But uh, South Carolina delegates were able to insert in the Constitution a provision that said that the federal government could not end uh, slave importations until 1807. So 20 years from 1787 to 1807. But it didn't matter because the states had all adopted rules against the slave trade. However, South Carolina shocked the country in 1804 and said, uh, we now need to get some African captives. They were basically, the Charleston uh, had always been the top uh, slave trading uh, center in the country, uh, including Henry Lawrence, uh, used to be a president of the Continental Congress, was one of the biggest slave traders in the colonies. Um, and in 1804, they decided they needed more slaves, mostly to sell to Georgia and on to Mississippi and, and Alabama. So, um, and uh, sad to say that Rhode Island, uh, out of, I think they counted about 150 ships, and uh, most, about 70 were from Britain, uh, about 65 were from North America, but out of those, 60 were from Rhode Island. So, um, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War did uh, have a big influence on a lot of the people in the North, but not everyone. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, I think uh, it helps to remind us that there were enslaved people during the war, and uh, they had important issues come up that affected them, uh, and particularly in the North, that there was were enslaved people in the North, and they didn't necessarily want to wait until the war ended. Uh, but also that um, I think, uh, you know, this law kind of shows that uh, in Rhode Island, they did want to end slavery, uh, but they just didn't want to end it during the war because they wanted to keep their eye on, on winning the war first. Christian McBurney, thanks again. Thank you. Glad to be here. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution 
is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.